the podcast where we talk about women from mythology and folklore all over the world. We're your hosts. I'm Lizzie. And I'm Zoe. Lizzie, how are you? I'm fine. There's like a really big storm here in the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. So it's raining a bit right now. So I'm sorry about that. If you can hear rain, I can't control that. Or wind. Yeah. <laughs> or wind. Yeah. Lots of wind. Nothing I can do for, about that. But um mm-hmm. Yeah, other than that, I'm perfectly fine. I got new glasses, so that's exciting. Yeah. They're reading glasses. I don't really need them. I'm just kind of wearing them because it's kind of it's kind of nice. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, how are you? I'm good. School is busy. Life is busy. It's also been really windy here, which is wild because the Netherlands is the other side of the world, but we're having like very similar weather. The weather is just bad in the whole like northern hemisphere right now. Really? I don't know. Do you know, know why that's that is? a bit of an exaggeration. Oh. No, I have no idea. I don't know anything about the weather. Oh, okay. I just, I've heard it from all over Europe and also a bunch of places in America. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's like back home, but here it's like crazy windy. I know it snowed back home yesterday, but it does that a lot. Oh yeah, I so. heard that. It also snowed in um, the British Isles the other day. Ooh. Yeah. Very exciting for them. Well, a few things before we get started. We do have a Kofi. Uh, it's linked in our description, and you should give us money because it's very helpful with us to produce the show. We do this all by ourselves with no outside help, no like network or anything. So yeah, if you want to slide us a few dollars, please do. It'd be really nice. We would appreciate it greatly. Also, we will be making bonus content in the future, so which will only be accessed. Sometime soon. If you give us money. So, yeah, you might want to get on that if you like us. I don't know. <laughs> Anyways. Mm-hmm. Also, we have a website where we put all our transcripts and sources, mytholadies.com. That is it. Uh, so, Lizzie, today is a very special episode. It is. It's our 50th episode. It's our 50th episode. And I told you to do something special. So, And I sure did. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know if I'm ready for this. but I don't know if you are ready for this. Who are we talking about? So, from the time that we started Mytho Ladies, I knew that I would do an episode on this lady at some point in the future, saving it for a special occasion, and now that day is today. Wait, can I'm I guess? I'm very excited. Yes, I would like you to guess. Is it Baba Yaga? Actually, no, it's not Baba Yaga. Oh, I okay. Guess. No. Um, oh, Cersei. Oh, really? Did you do Cersei? No, I thought you would be your first guess, actually. I always assumed that you would let me have this lady, because... I just love her, and it's very well documented. My love. For oh, oh! I know her. who you're doing. I know who, who is you're it? doing. You're doing Medusa. Exactly. I'm doing yep. Medusa. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. I love your first guess, honestly. I love Medusa. Um, I have like two different images of her on my wall. I love her so much. We have the same Medusa back patch on our jacket. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I actually took it off of my jacket because I didn't want to scare children, but now it's hanging on my wall. Oh. Oh, I guess I scare children then. I don't think it actually scares children. I was just a little bit uh, worried. Oh, yeah. To be gotcha. honest, I don't think Caravaggio's Medusa is that horrifying. Like, I guess it is. I don't, I mean, I don't yeah. know. It was just a precaution. Yeah, for sure. 
All right. Well, tell us about her, Lizzie. Okay. Okay. So today we're talking about Medusa from Greek mythology. So Medusa is one of three gorgons who are creatures in Greek mythology who had the power to turn living beings who looked at them to stone. They're typically depicted with snakes for hair and often wings, claws, and tusks, though they are also sometimes depicted as beautiful maidens. Interesting. So their parents are Forkis and Quito, who are both primordial sea deities, the children of Pontus, the personification of the sea, and Gaia, the personification of the earth. So they're siblings and also married, and they're most well-known in Greek mythology for parenting several creatures, including the Greye, the half-snake woman Echidna, and the Gorgons. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Free um, sighting offspring. And yeah. Echidna went to give birth to a bunch of other monsters, like the Chimera, yeah. so. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the word Gorgon comes from the Greek Gorgos, meaning grim or dreadful. Nice. The eldest Gorgon is Stheno, whose name means forceful or strong. Then Euryale, whose name means far-roaming or wide-stepping. And the youngest Gorgon sister is Medusa, whose name means guardian or protectress, hmm. from the ancient Greek medo, to rule over or protect. Interesting. Yeah. So Stheno and Euryale were immortal, and Medusa alone was mortal. All three had the power to turn people to stone. Any living creature would immediately turn to stone upon looking at their faces, and even the snakes that they had for hair that they sometimes had for hair, had to twist away from their faces to avoid looking right at them. Interesting. Yeah. So the main story associated with Medusa is her death at the hands of the hero Perseus. Mm -hmm. Perseus was the son of Zeus and Danae, a princess from Argos. Danae's father, King Chryseus, had been told by the oracle at Delphi that he would be killed at the hands of his grandson. So he locked Danae away so that she could never become pregnant. Mm. But Zeus impregnated her in the form of a shower of gold that fell on her lap. And so King Acrisius cast his daughter and grandson into the sea in a wooden chest. Mm. They washed ashore at the island of Seraphos and were taken in by the fisherman Dictus. How much of this do you already know all the details of? I know most of this, yeah. <laughs> yeah I but you should, you, should keep, you should keep telling it, though, because there might be Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this details. stuff is stuff that people know, but I'm still going to go over it. Yeah. So Dictus was the brother of the king of the island, Polydectes. Polydectes mm. fell in love with Danae, but Perseus didn't approve, so he wouldn't let him near his mother. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So Polydectes held a very large banquet where every man was meant to bring a gift of a horse. But Perseus didn't have any horse to give, so he offered to bring Polydectes another gift of Polydectes' choosing. So Polydectes demanded the head of Medusa, the only mortal gorgon whose gaze turned people to stone. Mm. Yeah. So Perseus received help from the gods to complete his mission. From Athena, he received a mirrored shield. From Hermes, he received winged sandals, a diamond sword, and Hades' cap of invisibility. With these items in hand, he came to the Gorgon's cave where Medusa was sleeping. Using the mirrored sword to avoid looking at her directly, he approached her and cut off her head. Wow. At this time, Medusa was pregnant by Poseidon, and when she was beheaded, Pegasus, the winged horse, and Chrysaur, either a giant or a winged boar, sprang from her neck. Nice. Perseus then used Medusa's severed head to turn his enemies into stone, including King Atlas and, of course, Polydectes. So that's like the first kind of the earliest interpretation of the Perseus story. Mm-hmm. Is Andromeda not in the first one? In the early one? Actually, I don't know. I wasn't really focusing on Andromeda. I think she is. I just... Yeah. Yeah, the first version, 
or like I guess not the first version, but some of the earlier versions are more like, well, it says that Medusa lay with Poseidon in a field. So the impregnation was consensual in this uh-huh. particular story. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So the Greek writer Pausanias also wrote that Perseus buried Medusa's head in the Agora in Argos to protect the city. And the writer Palephatos wrote that Perseus put Medusa's head on his ship, which he then named Gorgon and sailed around demanding money from people. Threatening to turn them to stone if they didn't comply. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't the best. <laughs> Apparently not. Anyway, so the other main interpretation of Medusa's story appeared later in the classical period, notably by Ovid. So in the Ovid version, the three Gorgons are beautiful maidens, and Medusa is the most beautiful of all, and had many mm-hmm. suitors. One day, Poseidon raped her in Athena's temple, and Athena punished Medusa by turning her hair to snakes and making mm-hmm. her the monster we know from the Perseus story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these two versions, they're not like in competition with each other, it's just that they appeared in different texts yeah so in one version medusa is more of a primordial being and the other she is immortal that was turned into a monster well in both versions she is mortal it's just that in the second version she's more like human like she's a Mm -hmm. beautiful young maiden whereas in the first one she's a creature who is just mortal and like her sisters which is why she was able to be killed like why perseus was sent after her and why athena Mm -hmm. also wanted her dead I don't know. Anyway, another detail from Ovid's Metamorphoses is that when Perseus traveled from the Gorgon's Den to Athena, he used the winged sandals from Hermes and flew Mm. over Libya, holding Medusa's severed head. Did you know this? I did know he had the winged sandals. Oh, well, I said that before. (laughs) I know. So typically Medusa was thought to live in either Ethiopia or Libya, which... Note, the ancient Greeks called all of North Africa Libya, so saying Libya could refer to anywhere in North Africa, not the country of Libya. Mm -hmm. And as Perseus flew over Libya, drops of blood fell from Medusa's head, and when they hit the earth, turned into snakes. This is why Libya is now full of snakes. You've heard this? I do remember the drops of blood turning into snakes. (laughs) Yeah, kind of cool. It's like the opposite of St. Patrick, you know? Yeah, oh, that's so true. Medusa and St. Patrick are opposites. (laughs) Exactly. The Roman poet Lucan also wrote that Athena forbade Perseus from taking the quickest route home precisely because he could turn entire cities to stone by flying overhead, Mm. which is why he traveled across Libya instead, because it was untilled land, according Mm. to this. (laughs) I I don't know if that's- I don't think- that doesn't sound true to me, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I Not that I know the history of the Sahara, anyway. Yeah. When he flew over the desert, the first snake to be formed from Medusa's blood was a deadly ass. One of the deadliest snakes in Libya, which, according to my my research, corresponds to the Egyptian cobra. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's very interesting, actually. Yeah. It also says in Ovid that at one point Perseus wished to wash his hands in the water of the Red Sea. So he put down Medusa's head on some seaweed, which caused it to harden, creating coral. Oh, Did you know that? I did not know that. I did not know that, Finally something new then. (laughs) And nowadays there is actually an order of coral known as Gorgonian coral or soft coral. Interesting. Which contains about 500 species of coral. Wow. Isn't that, I mean, if you look at coral, it does kind of look like snaky. Yeah, I mean, I know that aren't a lot of jellyfish named after Medusa or like Medusa in like... um, In fact, yes, they are. (laughs) In like romance languages and stuff. Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of European languages... 
the the some variant of Medusa is the word for jellyfish. Notably in Spanish and French, but also Lithuanian, Hungarian, Russian, Greek, Croatian, Czech, Polish, Swedish, and more. Wow. Which yeah, and also I I also find it interesting that it's the Greek word for jellyfish as well. Is it? Yeah. Huh, that is interesting. Yeah, right? But is it the modern Greek word, not the ancient Greek word? No, it's the modern Greek word. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if ancient Greece had a word for jellyfish. I don't know, honestly. Maybe they did, I don't know. Anyway, so um, before we go forward, do you want to tell me your thoughts on the Medusa story? Well, yes, I do want to tell you my thoughts. Um, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is a story that obviously I'm quite familiar with it. I'm familiar with like a lot of Greek myths because I obsessively read Dallaire's book of Greek myths as a child. Oh, so did I. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so, like, it's an interesting story. I think that the variations in her story are interesting as opposed to the one where she is just sort of birthed naturally from these two gods as opposed to when she's created by Athena mm-hmm. as a monster. Mm-hmm. I think that, obviously, the story of her being assaulted by Poseidon and then being turned into a monster because it was in Athena's temple is obviously quite upsetting. It's not... It's completely unfair. It's not Athena's best moment. It's really not her best moment. I mean, she she's, like, so tied to the Medusa story, even in other versions. Like, she really wants Medusa dead. It's yeah. very weird. It is really weird. I don't... I guess that's the why, um... It's just also interesting because I think Athena probably couldn't have really lashed out at Poseidon the way she wanted to, probably. I don't know. I mean, yeah, maybe not. Probably. I mean, they were like equals, whereas Medusa was a mortal. It's just harder to like react to gods than mortals. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, is just a huge theme of Greek mythology in general is the gods taking out their issues with each other on mortals who just kind of get caught in the middle. Yeah. The Trojan War. Uh, (laughs) For example, also, what was the one I was thinking of? Oh, I mean, basically any instance of, like, Zeus having an affair with a mortal woman and Hera getting revenge um, is, like, it's always the mortals who's being punished. Zeus never really gets gets punished. Um, But yeah. The gods just do literally whatever insane thing and then the mortals have to suffer. And that's the theme of Greek mythology. Yeah, that is the theme of Greek mythology is the gods can do whatever they want to you and there's nothing you can do about it, which is very, it's a very, it's a kind of dark view. There's a little Mm -hmm. like free will there. But yeah, so that's sort of like nothing happens to Poseidon in this story like at all. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He doesn't even appear at the end in any way. He's just like there for a second. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is where he almost gets this isn't really the same thing but like when andromeda is being chained to a rock to be sacrificed mm-hmm. and then perseus turns the monster into stone with the head of medusa like i guess that's mm-hmm. something yeah uh, but that's not really poseidon can deal with that it's not really a big thing for him but yeah like he doesn't really get any comeuppance for his actions and yeah so that's like my main thoughts about that aspect of the story i think that i also think it's interesting that her sisters get transformed with her because, like, they didn't even do anything, so it's See, like... the thing is, with that version, it's unclear to me what her sisters are doing. Uh-huh. Like, it, do- it doesn't really say. It just says that she was transformed. Okay, yeah. Well, that's also interesting to think about. Yeah, I mean, in most stories, you don't really see what becomes of Euryale and Steno. Like, in some yeah. versions, they chase after Perseus, and he escapes. Yeah. But, yeah, nothing really else is said about them besides that they are Medusa's sisters. Yeah. And that they're immortal. But, like, we don't know what happens to them. No. Also, I know in some stories, Athena then puts the head of Medusa on her shield. 
Yeah, she does. Exactly. Which is like, it's really a whole thing. A whole thing that she has against Medusa. No, yeah, literally. It's very weird. But yeah, I mean, those are my preliminary thoughts about the story. What do you have for me? A whole lot. I know. I know you do. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Okay, so hearing the Medusa story... One of the things that, that strikes me about it is juxtaposition between the way she's perceived as a terrifying villainous monster and the fact that her character doesn't really behave in a monstrous way at all. In the version where Athena transforms her into a monster, I think it's clear that Athena cursed her and doomed her and it's easy to interpret it as a tragedy on Medusa's behalf. Mm-hmm. But even in the other versions, she doesn't take action against anyone at all. She doesn't turn people to stone on purpose or out of any ill will. Mm. It's something that happens without her permission. And we never hear of her going out into the world to turn people into stone. In fact, it seems like she stays in the Gorgon's den with her sisters and doesn't really Mm -hmm. go into the outside world at all. Polydectes gives Perseus the mission to kill Medusa in order to get rid of Perseus and not even out of a specific grudge against Medusa. And when Perseus does kill Medusa, he does it while she's asleep, Mm -hmm. which is actually a rather unheroic way to kill yeah. what is supposed to be an evil monster. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. Although it does feel realistic, but like... I mean, definitely. That's not the point of Greek myths or anything. <laughs> really? Exactly. And there's no fight or struggle the way that there would be with like an evil villain. Medusa didn't attempt to fight Perseus at all. She wasn't even given the opportunity to defend herself since she was unconscious. Mm-hmm. And even the way Medusa is spoken about now suggests that she's an evil villain... But if you actually think about Medusa's story, it's very sad. No living creature can look at her face without being turned to stone. And it isn't even an active ability that she has. It's not that she turns people to stone by looking at them. It's that she turns people to stone by being looked at. Mm. She has no say in the matter, which sounds like it would actually be incredibly lonely. Mm-hmm. Like, so wait, what happens in the legend of King Midas and the Golden Touch? Well, he can't eat or drink because he everything he touches turns to gold. So he's not getting any food and he's like starving to death. And so he has to ask for his gift to be taken back. Yeah, and he accidentally kills his daughter. Right, that too. By turning her to stone. Like, he starts off being like, yeah, this rocks. I'm rich. But then he ends up realizing it's very like lonely and sad to not be able to touch anything or anyone. And he ends up just hating it. And I mean, like, yeah, kind of the same thing with Medusa. Or, well, worse, because she didn't even ask for it. Like, she mm-hmm. must be very lonely. Like, she can only talk to her sisters. And, yeah, she can't She can't do anything. She just stays in her little gorgon's den all day. And then she just gets killed. Mm-hmm. And she gets killed because of, like, who she is rather than anything that she's done. And that's really unfair. <sighs> anyway, I do think that her story is a tragedy where she's persecuted and punished for things that aren't really her fault. And she doesn't really have any agency at all, yet her powers are used by her enemies even after her death. Yeah, that's also really interesting. Yeah. So when people talk about Medusa, they usually talk about her monstrousness, her rage, etc. With varying degrees of compassion for her as a figure, some more, some less. But what's almost never talked about is her associations with healing and protection. Mm. I mentioned earlier that her blood created snakes in Libya and coral in the Red Sea, which is interesting because it means she isn't just associated with death, but also with the creation of new life. And another important part of her story involves her giving birth to Pegasus and Chrysaur, who were born after she was beheaded. In addition to that, Euripides wrote in his play Ion that gorgon blood can have healing properties Mm -hmm. as well as destructive properties. You just know everything that I'm telling you. I don't know everything. 
In the play, Queen Creusa plots to kill someone with Gorgon blood, and she says, two drops of Gorgon blood, one is poisonous, the other cures disease. And Apollodorus wrote that Asclepius, a god of medicine, was given Gorgon mm. blood by Athena. And right. he, quote, used the blood that flowed from the veins on the left side for the bane of mankind. He used the blood that flowed from the right side for salvation. And by that means, he raised the dead. Which, yeah. once again, a dual association with destruction and healing. Yeah, for sure. Which, what strikes me about this is that Medusa's blood was used after her death for life-giving and healing purposes. Which, for one thing, shows that Medusa as a figure is equally associated with life as she is with death. Which makes you question the way she's perceived as a deadly monster. Mm. And for another thing, it, I mean, it makes me think about how, even more about how unfair Medusa's fate is. Yeah. Like, her death helped Perseus rise to fame. It created life in the form of snakes and coral, which I know that the deadly snake thing isn't exactly positive, but still. Yeah. It was also what gave birth to Pegasus, who went on to help the hero Bellerophon defeat the Chimera. And Chrysaur... The blood from her severed head could heal wounds and raise the dead, and her head ended up being used by Perseus, Athena, and others for protection. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned before, after Perseus beheaded Medusa, he used her as a weapon, turning his enemies to stone, but also for protective purposes. In one instance, like I mentioned, burying her head in Argos to offer protection for the entire city, mm-hmm. and in, in another instance, putting it on the helm of his ship. Right, yeah. Which... <laughs> For one thing, I feel like it's a double standard that when Medusa turns people to stone by accident, she's seen as a monster who needs to be destroyed. But when Perseus does it on purpose, he's seen as a hero. That's a very good point. I mean, he literally does the same thing that she does, but he does it on purpose. And like, to kill people. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, like, she's just doing it because it's her nature, but Perseus is actively choosing to use her to hurt people. Exactly. And I mean, Perseus really isn't, like, that impressive of a hero. Like, he killed her <laughs> while, while she was sleeping. Yeah, I mean, I feel like he has so... Like, the gods give him so many tools to help him. Yeah, like, like what does he ever do by he himself? He has a sword. He has, the, Hades, he has a cap of invisibility. Like Literally. I could kill Medusa if right? I had a cap of invisibility and a fancy sword. And a mirror and, shield. Yeah. And protection like, from Athena. And protection from, yeah, like, and wing what did sandals. he actually do? Also, why did they like him so much? I don't actually right? remember. I, I don't know. Maybe just because th- he's the son of Zeus and Zeus was like, yo, help my child out or something. Like, I just I know, know Athena was like, okay, time to kill Medusa, so I'm going to help yeah. this guy because he's trying to kill Medusa. Because she just really hated Medusa. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very weird, actually. Anyway, but also, in addition to legendary uses of her head, it was also common in ancient times to use images of Medusa's head for protective purposes. For example, Mm -hmm. outside of temples, as part of funerary monuments, outside homes, and on shields and armor. It was also common to wear pendants with gorgon heads, which were known as gorgonea, as protective pendants. Gorgonea were found all across the Mediterranean, including on coins in 37 cities, which made them one of the most popular images for money, only beaten by Olympian deities. Wow, that is really interesting. Isn't it? And yeah, so her image was used to scare away evil, intimidating and provoking fear in people, sometimes to scare away enemies, and also sometimes to remind people to behave themselves. Like in the case of money, mm-hmm. I read that it was more for like, if you're using money, if you're like looking at a picture of Medusa on a coin, it's like reminding you to, like if you're stealing from your neighbors, then you have Medusa looking back at you and being scary. Interesting. And, yeah. Yeah. It reminds people to behave themselves and is just like a generally scary thing to have on 
stuff. Mm-hmm. So thus, with her associations of fear, death, and anger, it's also equally important to remember her associations with light, healing, and protection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's so interesting that that aspect of her is just completely erased. And I feel Isn't like it? it's erased by both the people who are just, you know, the old guard of classical scholars who are often kind of misogynistic and like are just like, I'm just translating the myths as they are or whatever. But also like, I feel like when Medusa's often tried to be reclaimed by like feminists, they also don't talk about that fact. They just talk about exactly. like, her victimhood or like her power as an ugly monster or whatever. Exactly. Like, they don't really talk about the fact that maybe she wasn't even a monster at all. Like she just, and she exactly. had the I power to agree. give and take life. Yeah. And, like, the idea that she can be reclaimed makes it seem like she has ever done anything wrong, which she kind of hasn't. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I don't care. I'm saying it. She never did anything wrong. True. I mean, I do think that, like, evil involves some sort of intention. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not her fault that she turns people to stone. Like That's true, yeah. It's not the fault of a, a poisonous, venomous, poisonous? Yes, it's venomous. If it bites you and you die, it's venomous. If you bite it and you die, it's poisonous. I mean, either way, if some plant or animal's nature is to be, like, poisonous, it's not its fault. No, it's not. That's just how she was born. Mm-hmm. You know? Anyway, <laughs> I forget what my original point was here, but, um... Evil requires yeah. intention. Yeah, evil requires intention. I don't know. But also, yeah, it's totally true that people who condemn her and people who celebrate her tend to ignore or they just don't know about these aspects of her. Mm-hmm. That there is equal healing as there is destruction and that she has a lot of protective associations as well. Medusa's iconography has varied a lot over the centuries. Tracing her iconography, she has been commonly associated with bird and snake imagery, most notably with wings and snakes for hair. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But she has also been frequently depicted with tusks, like a boar, uh-huh. and sometimes as a horse or a centauress. Huh. Yeah, that's like not as common, but that's sometimes. That makes sense, though. I mean, she did give birth to Pegasus, so it does, it does make a yeah, bit of sense. Yeah, I think that's probably the thing, yeah. <laughs> She was also frequently depicted with a beard huh. and um, at one point also appeared with the head of a lion. Yeah, actually Medusa with facial hair is a pretty common, um, like when she's depicted in her like grotesque, fearsome form, she'll have like a beard and like tusk. Hmm, weird. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, her association with birds and snakes suggests a relation to Neolithic death goddesses. Goddesses with bird and snake iconography appeared in the Neolithic era throughout Europe, Western Asia, and North Africa, notably in Mesopotamia, Egypt, Anatolia, and the Balkans. Huh. And they're thought to be associated with birth, death, and rebirth. Mm-hmm. The realms of the bird and snake cover all of the worlds. Birds fly in the heavens, but sometimes also occupy the waters. Snakes live on the earth and sometimes in the waters as well and are often associated with the underworld. Both birds and snakes represent rebirth since birds molt and snakes shed their skin. In Neolithic Europe, birth and death were seen as a continuum, so the goddess of death also presided over rebirth. Mm -hmm. Death wasn't viewed as the end, but just another phase in the cycle of death, birth, and rebirth. Mm -hmm. In the myth of Medusa, she gives birth as she is dying, Mm -hmm. which exemplifies the duality of her association with both death and life yeah yeah that's so true also i just kind of i don't know i sort of picture it as like shedding a skin if pegasus comes out of her neck it's like shedding the skin of medusa and becoming pegasus i don't know that's a little gross but yeah i mean yeah it's a little gross but (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of associations with her that are about life, like giving birth, fertility, Mm -hmm. which is so interesting because of the way that she's seen purely as death, destruction. In ancient Greece, society moved away from the cyclical view of death into a more linear one, and death became more fearsome, and death figures became horrific, Mm -hmm. where once they were seen as more ambivalent. Many other monstrous female figures were also associated with snakes or birds, such as the Furies, Sirens, and Harpies. Mm-hmm. Medusa can also be connected with Indo-European figures, such as Ereshkigal, the Mesopotamian ah, yes. death goddess. Yeah, and um, there's some detail about Ereshkigal that said that she has leeks for hair, which is sort of... It's sort of snake-like. Yeah, yeah. As well as Kali, a Hindu death goddess. Yes. Which, both these figures also served protective purposes, just as Medusa, but only Medusa is seen as monstrous and evil. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that shift from, like, death just being part of a cycle as to death being, like, the end of a line is very a very interesting, like, shift in human history. Yeah, and it makes figures that you associate with death to be really terrifying and... Yeah. It makes death a lot scarier. Yeah, it makes them seem like evil, even if yeah. it's before or like otherwise it's just a part of life. Mm-hmm. Death is an important part of life, but in this linear view, it's like the end of everything. Mm-hmm. So Medusa is just one example of many hybrid female figures with both animalistic and human features, which signified mm-hmm. the other and were associated with destruction. Beginning around the 5th century BCE, there was a shift in representations of such figures from grotesque to more human and beautiful. Interesting. In ancient Greece, beauty was strongly associated with goodness and morality, since it was thought that one's character was represented in their physical appearance. So an ugly appearance indicated evil, and a beautiful appearance indicated goodness. Over time, depictions of Medusa adapted more to the aesthetic sensibilities of the time, which favored beauty over ugliness. I just think it's interesting that because they favor beauty, they make her more beautiful when, like, the association is that she's a scary monster. Yeah. I think I think what this means is that, like, I mean, I know she's evil, but I don't want to look at that, you know? I guess so, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I mean, I do think <laughs> that it wasn't just that she was always viewed as, like, a horrifying monster. Like, there were times Yeah, when I mean, I feel like that's the sort of thing that I'm thinking about now is, like, well, if they're not, wouldn't they want her to be more scary if she was evil yeah exactly well like okay this is a bit tangential but like i do think that there are times when or like where it can at least be interpreted that medusa is not really being viewed as evil but as a more like sympathetic and like tragic figure like the version where she is raped by poseidon which is definitely more sympathetic like Mm -hmm. her i mean her life kind of sucks for no reason yeah and like there are some depictions in art where it's like perseus is like running away from the gorgons and all this stuff and that can be interpreted as making Perseus look stupid, like he's running away from girls, you know? Mm-hmm. And he just beheaded some beautiful woman, and now he's just running away from her sisters, and that that's meant to be kind of, yeah. like, comical. Yeah. Like, to laugh at Perseus rather than celebrating huh. him. That is interesting. I mean, it's an interpretation. Like, we don't necessarily know what these people were thinking when they were drawing, or, like, when they were painting Perseus running away from the Gorgons and all this stuff. Yeah, that's very true. Anyway, that's a theory that I read. Like, that he wasn't always meant to be super celebrated, but sometimes meant to be kind of comical. Like, haha, he's running away from girls. Like, not really to be celebrated. That is very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the extent to which that's true. Mm -hmm. It's just... I don't know. We never know the context that these things are created in. Like, we just look at it, we take it at face value. Yeah. We can't really ask people what they were doing 
2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so then Medusa came to be depicted as beautiful more frequently in art and literature. And this evolution continued even after the classical period. Baroque and Renaissance paintings of Medusa tended to depict her with human-like, often beautiful features, but were generally, from my experience, still meant to be horrifying since they depicted her severed head or her petrifying mm-hmm. gaze. I saw yeah. so many paintings of her with a severed head. Like, <sighs> yeah. You know, it's also interesting that the head is what they focus on as opposed to, like, her being alive. Yeah, I mean, I think that for a long time it was mainly her head being depicted and that her full body became more common later, like with wings and whatever. But at first, I mean, the Medusa head is like, that's like the main iconography, you know? It definitely is, yeah. So nowadays, I feel like whenever I see art of Medusa, she's usually depicted in a way that's very like glamorous, like sexualized, very seldom Mm -hmm. grotesque or horrifying to behold. Her association seems to have gone from uniquely horrifying to a symbol of the seduction and power. Hmm. I have mixed feelings about this, really, yeah. but um, anyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I don't know why she would be considered seductive. No, I completely agree. Like, her story like, is... Her story is that she was, she was assaulted, not consensually. Exactly. Exactly. So to like, depict I don't... her as a seductress is kind of weird and questionable, in my opinion. No, I completely agree. Like, I was also thinking that because, I mean, does it really subvert the idea that she's evil when you depict her like that? Because, I mean, just the idea that seductresses are evil and evil women are seductresses yeah. and that they are, like, always associated. Like, that she was, like, a monstrous figure, thus she's a seductive figure. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, like, I was talking about this with my, with my roommate, Kathy, and I was saying, like, oh, it's, like, kind of annoying to me that she's, like, sexualized now. Uh-huh. And so she was saying to me, like, is it better if she's depicted as really monstrous and, like, grotesque? Or is it better when she's depicted as sexualized, where it can be seen as kind of empowering? And I don't think there's, like, a right answer to that for me personally. Because I feel like there's some time... You can look at the depictions of her as monstrous and be like... When you can reclaim that, you can be like, yeah, great. But I don't know. I don't know. I feel like... Well, first of all, I feel like there's a way for her to be empowering that's not her being, like, sexy and seductive. And I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being sexy and seductive. I just think in the particular context of her story, it's a questionable choice to make. Uh, yeah. But also, like, I mean, I feel like a big part of Medusa's story is, like, ultimately that she doesn't have the agency that she should have. She sort of has that taken away from her. And so, like, I don't know. Like, like I guess I understand why people, like, want to sort of re-empower her because of that mm-hmm. exact aspect. But it's mm-hmm. also, like, I don't know. Like, there's nothing in her story that would suggest that she is, like, a sexual like seductive being yeah and i think that like the desire to sort of empower her comes from like her depiction as a monster yeah and like as a victim but yeah no i think she's powerful which i get i totally understand but also i don't know i guess i feel weird about this over glamorized yeah depiction of her where it's like are we ever getting the actual story and just focusing on her image Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean there's no right answer yeah That's just... Mm -hmm. And her face is depicted on the Versace logo, which in 1996, when Gianni Versace was asked why he chose Medusa for his logo, he said, Medusa means seduction, a dangerous attraction. Okay. Which, yeah. (laughs) Okay, sir. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) Which, to me, exemplifies the view of Medusa now. She's still seen as a deadly monster. Rather than fearing her, people seem to revere her to the point of Mm -hmm. glamour, seduction, arguably against some of the finer points of her actual myth. But it seems to me that representations of Medusa now are more likely to sexualize her than to paint her as grotesque, which 
as we were saying, there's pros and cons of this sort of thing. I do think that it really takes her out of context of her story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, again, I just feel like there can be a middle ground here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole point is that she's many things. She's not one thing. She, she can yeah. be beautiful and monstrous. She can be healing and destructive. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think it's just kind of the nature, unless people are literally like, mythical scholars they're not gonna like know every detail of her story but but yeah i do think that the way people talk about her it really takes her out of context like it's either that she's evil or that she's well i do think that she was a victim but like i i don't know i feel like when you see medusa art now she looks like a wonderful she looks like a beautiful like glamorous woman mm-hmm. but she has snakes for hair like the yeah. only really like distinctive thing about her that makes her medusa is the snakes for hair thing mm-hmm. i don't know I like the tusks. I like the tusks, personally. Tusks? The tusks are kind of fun. I think they're fun. I think they're fun. That's all I have to say. I think the wings are also kind of fun. They are. Something I came upon that I found very interesting is the ancient Greek writer Lucian had an alternate interpretation of the legend of the Gorgons. He wrote in the 2nd century CE that it is the beauty of the Gorgons that stuns people. He contrasted gorgons with sirens, saying that sirens charm people with their music, but gorgons stun people with their beauty. Huh. Yeah, to illustrate his point that the power of the tongue is no match for the eyes. Which, I mean, I feel like this sort of goes along with the whole Medusa point either way. Like, if she's so beautiful that she stuns people, or if she's so ugly that she stuns people. I mean, like we Mm -hmm. were saying, ancient Greece was very big on looks. So it makes Mm -hmm. absolute sense that it's all tied to, like, how she looks and, like, how grotesque or beautiful that she is yeah for sure which yeah i think this is kind of an efficient way of explaining the cultural hold of medusa no matter whether she is grotesque or beautiful her imagery is striking and the essence of her myth involves the idea that there are some things so remarkably stunning or horrifying that a human being can't look directly at them can't Mm -hmm. face them directly only indirectly When Medusa is monstrous and when she is beautiful and when she's both, she's too great for an ordinary person to behold. Yeah. Which is powerful. I mean, she really didn't have a lot of agency within her story, but, like, she still, in a way, held a lot of power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, she definitely did. Or, like, her story does, anyway. Yeah, yeah. And her image is more, like, so than her, exactly, but, yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, because she really didn't do very much. I mean, she had things happen to her, which is a shame, but, um... Anyway, (laughs) Medusa has appeared in art and literature from the days of ancient Greece to the present day and has been depicted by dozens of famous artists like Caravaggio, Pablo Picasso, Auguste Rodin, and Peter Paul Rubens. Mm -hmm. She's also been written about by the likes of Dante Alighieri, Francis Bacon, Percy Shelley, Jean-Paul Sartre, and Sylvia Plath. Mm -hmm. Which to me begs the question of why her image and her story are so long-lasting to the point of remaining culturally relevant consistently for thousands of years Mm -hmm. um what do you think what do you think is the answer to that oh gosh well i mean i feel like the protection thing must be a big thing Mm -hmm. to make her image last because if it's a protective image like you want that around therefore there's just going to be more artifacts (laughs) of, like, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Images with her around. Although, I mean, I'm sure that she wasn't like the only protective figure in all of ancient Greek mythology. That's true. I'm wondering if there's something that's what we've been talking about this whole time of the the juxtaposition of both extreme beauty and extreme ugliness. Like, even mm-hmm. in um the second story about her, the idea is that she was so beautiful that she attracted the attentions of Poseidon, and then like some stories say that Athena wanted to take away her beauty and punish her. 
And I think there's this sort of idea of, I don't know, in a lot of depictions, it's sort of like the depiction of beauty while also depicting ugliness at the same time and like changing Mm -hmm. aspects of her to be like ugly, like showing her hair, being snakes or like her having tusks or wings or whatever, but also keeping her face relatively beautiful and like, Mm -hmm. you know, still depicting a beautiful woman with monstrous features. Mm -hmm. And I feel like maybe that's something that interests people is just that she sort of represents both sort of embodies both extreme beauty and extreme ugliness in the Mm -hmm. same time and people are like trying to figure out how that exists together yeah i totally agree there's just something really like resonant and striking about her story like the imagery Mm -hmm. and the myth itself is just it just has a hold on people like me as well (laughs) you know yes yeah, I mean, like, for me, I feel like the imagery of Medusa throughout the ages is honestly more interesting and inspiring to me than, like, her actual story. Mm-hmm. Like, I just, I love the image of her, like, again, I have the, you know, Caravaggio Medusa back patch that I have on my jacket. And it's like, I love that image. I think it's a really interesting, so powerful image. And, like, when I look at it, I'm not really thinking about the story behind it. I'm just thinking about what a cool piece of art it is. I agree. You know, I was kind of thinking about it while I was doing my notes of like, I was just thinking that when I look at Caravaggio's Medusa, I don't really see horror. Like, yeah. to me, she looks like, I don't know, scared more than ferocious. I was reading a little bit about the painting. I read that either he used his own face for the face of Medusa or the face of like some male model. And I read one analysis that said that it's like Medusa like looking at herself and like fearing like herself of being like, oh my god, I look like that. Like, I'm and like sort of like petrifying yourself. I don't know. Anyway, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I I really like the Caravaggio painting. I like a lot of different ones actually. I like the one by Peter Paul Rubens and it's like the one where she's like a severed head like a surrounded yeah. by like snakes. Anyway, my personal take, uh-huh, is that at the most basic level, the image of like a scary lady with snakes in her hair is cool, kind of like what you were saying, like just purely yeah. from like a visual perspective it's just a cool image and at a deeper level it's it's easy to find compassion for medusa particularly for women which is why Mm -hmm. it makes sense that she has become a feminist icon Mm -hmm. her story resonates with people the legend of medusa is ripe with misogyny which makes her a great subject for feminist analysis and an appealing Mm -hmm. subject to reclaim as many female artists and writers have and her story has also resonated with men, such as Sigmund Freud, who viewed her story mm. as an allegory for castration. Okay. Um, you um, can t- whatever, Freud. <laughs> you can trust Freud to come up with something so Stupid. weird. <laughs> Stupid, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, and also Karl Marx used the analogy of Medusa's head to talk about social evils that hide behind the veil of normalized capitalist production. Jean-Paul Sartre used her to talk about nihilism. Roland Barthes used her transformation by Athena as a metaphor for beliefs or public opinion that are blindly accepted. There's something in her story for everyone. Yeah, apparently so. That's a lot. (laughs) Lots of just, like, varying analogies using Medusa's story. It's it's amazing. In the myth of Medusa, her legacy long outlives her, with her disembodied head being used as a weapon or as a shield by Perseus and Athena. And similarly, the cultural legacy of Medusa has survived across centuries, long after her death, long after the decline of ancient Greece, and continues to grip people all over the world. Yeah. Including me. Exactly. That was really awesome. Thank you for making us a wonderful 50th episode, Lizzie. Um, oh, 
Yeah, I love talking about it with you. And yeah, I think she's such an interesting figure. I have so many thoughts about Medusa. There's also been so much scholarship about her, but I can never cover everything in one episode. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Hopefully I did a decent job. I think so. I think so. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to our 50th episode. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, tell all your friends that you liked us, and donate to our Kofi. And thank you so much. Have a great day. Um, thank you. <laughs> we'll see you in two weeks with another episode. Bye. Bye. At the Ladies Podcast is produced by Elizabeth LaCroix and Zoe Kenninger. Today's episode was researched and presented by Elizabeth LaCroix. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at MythoLadies and visit us on our website at MythoLadies.com. Our cover art is by Helena Cayo. Our music was written and performed by Icarus Tyree. Thank you for listening. See you next time.